listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofaro, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. What is it about dark humor? And why are we particularly drawn to it when wrestling with painful life events? While grief is often stereotyped as sadness or maybe even anger, laughter, especially the kind that wells up from a shared understanding of heartbreak, is one of those aspects of grief that we might not really get until we're the ones who are actually grieving. For Harry Jensen, whose father died of stage four colon cancer in January of 2017, comedy and the pursuit of laughter, even the very uncomfortable kind, became an outlet for his grief. As a college student, he began performing stand-up comedy as a way to put his grief into words. Words that often spark discomfort and uncertainty, but also serve as inspiration for people in the audience to open up about their own grief. Harry, thanks so much for being part of the show today and talking with me. Well, thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about what you've been missing most about your dad lately. Uh, One thing that I'm missing a lot now is his cooking. I'm 21 and I'm, you know, been cooking for myself for a few years, but uh, I don't seem to be getting much better. And he was a great cook. Are there particular dishes that you've been extra missing lately? Uh, you know, mashed potatoes and gravy, uh, fettuccine alfredo, spaghetti, simple things, but they uh, tasted a particular way when my dad cooked them. And by that you might mean like not burnt or? Yes, not, not burnt, uh, an appropriate amount of garlic, <laughs> you know, just no mysterious water, just things like that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's nothing like the mysterious water. <laughs> it really sets you off. Mm-hmm. It's like, these are eggs. Yeah. <laughs> so you're looking to expand your repertoire of, of mac and cheese and mm-hmm. wishing that your dad was here to be able to show you the ways. Yeah, I think that uh, going from no good dishes to three mediocre dishes would be a great goal for the next 20 <laughs> years of my life. Your dad dealt with cancer for a lot of years, right? Yeah, it was uh, it was about eight years. Sometimes I say seven or ten, but a long time. And how, when someone's dealing with a diagnosis and with an illness and with treatment for, for so many years, in what way did that change him and did it change the relationship you had with him? Uh, well, one way it changed him was he, he was a little grumpy, a chemo brain, and uh, running his own business while, you know, having half a dozen years worth of chemo treatments is... Uh, big toll. Another way it changed is, you know, usually when you're a teenager, you don't expect to be taking care of your parents. And I, I did spend a lot of time, especially in the last few years of his life, taking care of him, which is sort of a reverse of the parental child role. How do you think that uh, influenced you or affected you in, in terms of being a teenager and taking the steps that many people take when they're in their adolescence? Uh, well, one thing is I think it's hard to foster a, a, a sense of confidence without having also some, some guilt and some regret because I was in college, uh, 
you know, 3,000 miles away from my father during a significant part of the last portion of his life. And that's a lot of thing, you know, or that's a thing that people my age usually don't have to think about too much, like, you know, who's going to die while I'm away. Um, and so I think that was, that was difficult, uh, to realize that the choices I wanted to make as a young person were going to be in contrast with taking care of my father in his last years. What kinds of conversations did you have with your dad about that choice to go to college far away from home, knowing that he was in a pretty advanced place in his illness? Well, my father uh, really valued education more than more than most things. And I went to Reed College, which is a little liberal arts college. And he went to Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota, which is a little liberal arts college. So he was, you know, gratefully um, and actually very, very proud and really thought that I was doing the right thing and pursuing um, an education and how to think, as he would call it. And I'm glad we had those conversations uh, where he was able to express that there was no feeling of resentment or that I had made any wrong or selfish choice. So that was that was a gift. So even with your dad's full permission to be pursuing your degree and being far away from home, there's still that sense of some guilt and regret that you carry. Yeah, definitely. Um, my brother ended up taking care of my dad a lot because he went to school, he went to grad school in Minnesota where our family is from. He's an amazing guy. He was working um, at the time and, you know, taking care of my dad after, you know, uh, surgery to replaced his vertebrae. I really wish I could have helped a bit more, even if my dad didn't think it was a time in my life to be doing that. Do you have a sense, and you may not have an answer to this question because you only have your own experience, but do you have a sense from watching other people that you were in school with that the decisions you made in college or the way you engaged in that experience was different because of your dad's illness? Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, what we've been told and what's easy to believe is that college or that time in your life, whatever you're doing is the time to figure out what you're doing and who you are and the sort of individualistic path that you're taking. I always was haunted by the knowledge that I was not at home and not taking care of my father. I think it made decisions very difficult and always with a a back panel of where could I be, you know, so a little bit more regret than I found in my peers at that time. That makes me think of the idea when you're in like a kayak or some other boat. I don't do a lot of boating, so I don't have a lot of options to choose from here, but the idea of when you put your rudder down and Mm -hmm. it puts a bit of a drag on the ability to be moving forward um, because it's Mm -hmm. always kind of pulling you a little bit backwards. Yeah, so it's sort of like being your own drag, you know. (laughs) That's definitely how I think of you, Harry, is being your own drag. (laughs) Yeah, well, I don't even know if I'm in the kayak. I'm just behind it, doggy paddling, trying to push it. (laughs) And speaking of college, you just graduated. I did. I did last month, yep. And that's one of those events, you know, that we think of major milestone in our life and what does it mean to to do that without the people who are most important to us. And what was graduation like? It was, uh, it was really nice. A lot of my family came in to, to see me, um, my dad's mother and his siblings and his best friend from college. 
it was good because we all knew that he wasn't there and we got to talk about it sometimes. You know, I'm lucky enough to have a family that when my father passed, we all sort of came together because he was the center holding it together. But instead of drifting apart, we sort of collapsed in, which 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 I'm grateful for because we're very close. That sounds like a really unusual trajectory in that a lot of times in a family when the person who dies was really like the center of the planetary universe, people do tend to like bounce out of the galaxy. What was different about your family? I'd say that my my uncle and my aunt and uh, my grandmother, you know, make make great efforts to to keep everyone in touch. And, uh, you know, they call me and I started to call my grandmother pretty regularly. Um, I don't know. I I think we're just we just had an, an amazing family and we miss it a lot. And it was hard to see it change, but we've just adapted with a missing piece. And it seems like to some conscious decision to make that effort. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. A lot of my dad's friends, for instance, you know, I'm not in contact with anymore. And you start to realize that people are links to other people. um, And without that link, sometimes you'll lose a little bit of contact. But our family really didn't want to lose any contact and wanted to work very hard to keep things, you know, the same in in terms of, you know, love and tenderness. One thing that I mean, I think this is changing a little bit in terms of society and culture, but most people don't associate comedy or laughter with grief or the fact that someone has died. And, you know, at the Dougie Center, we have a pretty explicit guideline about the fact that we have laughter in our group and we try to warn people that laughter could happen. And they're new to group or grief or having a day where everything is pissing them off. Like the, the laughter could feel maybe unsettling or unnerving in some way. But for a lot of people like comedy and, and dark humor is a really big part of connecting with other people around grief or just expressing their grief. And you've really taken that to the next level where you're a comedian and you take your grief on stage with you. What, what's that experience been like? Well, it's been, it's been really, uh, relieving and, um, fulfilling and it seems like I'm using my voice for something I want to use it for. Not having a lot of peers to relate to um, in terms of our society and culture and losing a parent before you turn 20, it's difficult to find a medium where I can share that experience and feel heard and, and known. So it's it's been it's been good. It's very difficult. I think people are hesitant to laugh at that kind of material. It's hard material to write for that reason. But when it works, it's um, it's very liberating and uh, cathartic. Yeah, it feels like I'm doing good work. And you perform primarily at your college. So these are folks that you might see around the campus or have class with. Has it changed your relationships or friendships in any way? There, there's a few people that I actually got to know a little better because of uh, a set I did on Parents Weekend about, you know, my dad having passed. And a few people came up to me and I didn't know that they had had struggles with their parents either dying or having terminal illnesses. And we got to become close because of it. Everyone else, you know, I don't know what they, they think about it, but it's definitely more than worth it just to meet a few people who similarly feel a 
alone in that experience. To open the door for those kinds of conversations for other people who maybe felt really alone in their experience as well. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm the jackass on stage just making earned jokes and what have you. And then they get to know a little something about me and I get to be allow myself to be sort of a figurehead for that, you know, identity experience intersection and say how crazy I feel and, you know, how angry I get and how unfair it seems sometimes. And, you know, hopefully people get to share in that overexpression. Well, or expression, at mm. least. Interesting how we catch ourselves to say overexpression, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. when it's just a, the reality. Yeah. It is just the reality, but it feels like an overexpression in that it's usually uh, mitigated and tamed when I'm having just regular conversation. And performance allows a kind of authenticity that isn't necessarily on par with etiquette. I know it's probably hard to just like do a joke when it's an audience of one, <laughs> me, with a microphone right. on your face this way. But do you have examples of, of some of your like favorite, and I use that word lightly, jokes that you have? Well, the first uh, one-liner I wrote is, is really lame. It says, I, uh, I used to carry around uh, my father's urn, but it was just dead weight. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I, I have some cancer-specific ones. Uh, a lot of my a lot of my material is based off of sort of euphemisms and the silly things people say. You know, my father died of cancer, and you know people love to say it was it was a brave battle. You know it was a brave battle, but it, it's interesting they don't really say that about a lot of other things. You never see uh, a newspaper article or an obituary that says. You know, Jeff Thompson, age 57, after a brave battle with the Portland Metro, was hit by a bus. You know, it's just, it's, there's just certain things. Or what happened? You know, what happened? I'm like, he's, there's no, there's not a person in the body anymore. You know, it's amazing that a nation that eats 10 McChickens a week doesn't understand the transience of life and existence. Um, yeah, and then, well, one premise I, I have that I haven't turned into a full joke is, you know, I'm in a grief group, not because uh, my dad died, but because yours didn't. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great one, right? Mm-hmm. To speak of like, I have to go to grief group because the rest of the world doesn't know how yeah, to be around yeah, me. Because you're annoying. Uh-huh. <laughs> you annoy me. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, uh, yeah, one of my favorite ones that I think I've heard from you, and I don't know if it's one that you use up on stage, but uh, talking about urns and just referring to it as a body jar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, and there's a bunch of dead dad dust in there. Mm-hmm. No, I, I love making those jokes. And uh, I have a friend whose mother died three months before mine. And, you know, whenever we talk about it, we just, like, laugh for hours. And we like to call uh, socially inappropriate dead dad, dead mom jokes bangers mm. because it just sort of silences the room. <laughs> right. But there's sort of a guilty pleasure in making everyone incredibly uncomfortable with the, the circumstances of your own existence. Which is so, like, I don't know, I don't know if refreshing is the right word to say to hear, because, you know, so many people who are grieving walk around working really hard to make sure they're not making other people uncomfortable. And it seems right. like you've gone to the place of, like, purposely working to make mm-hmm. people uncomfortable to make a point. Yeah, and uh, there's a, a comedian has a has a, uh, an adage that I like where he says he likes to take people to scary places and make them laugh, you know, and and I I really like that too, because 
I think it would be a better world if we weren't so uncomfortable talking about the traumas and tragedies other people experience without feeling like, you know, I don't know what to say. What do I say? What do I have to say? Instead of just, you know, listening and laughing with them. Because the people I appreciate the most um, in the category of not sharing my experience are the people who are willing to laugh with me about it. So you you are part of a grief group, and that's another way of kind of going public with your grief, but very different than going on stage and, and sharing jokes to an audience. What feels the same? What feels different? How do you navigate those two environments? Well, when I'm on stage and I'm performing, I, I have to assume that most people in the audience don't share the experience I'm talking about if I'm doing a set or a joke about, you know, grief or my dad's having cancer or something like that. So I have to work a lot harder to bring people in. And when I'm in group, there's a uh, an already understood shared experience. So it's a lot more light and casual. And you can say a lot wackier things without scaring people. <laughs> because when you're talking about dark material and you're making, you know, dark jokes, sometimes you worry people. And it's really nice in group never to have to worry about that. You can just say the most bonkers shit you are thinking. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, I got drunk with the urine also, you know. And that's that's refreshing and doesn't require me to be a performer, obviously. I'm not trying to be. <laughs> Do you find you get better laughs at group or on stage? I think, I think... A shared, yeah, shared experience breeds a kind of empathy that makes things really funny. Like, you know, you can laugh at a joke that's about a dead dad, but if you can laugh because you're thinking about your own experience, it's, uh, it's stronger. There's a, there's a saying that uh, if it's hysterical, it's historical, mm. which means, you know, if something's really funny, it, you know, it happened to you. Because you get it, too. Mm-hmm. What... What would your dad think of your comedy? I think I think he would be uh, happy I'm doing it. He's a he was a very very funny guy. Um, he did see some of my improv shows in high school, but he's never seen me do stand up. He might get grumpy at some of the jokes about him, um, but a lot of them are about him being dead, so that'd be sort of confusing mm-hmm, <laughs> for him to comment on those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're recording uh, about six days before Father's Day. Mm-hmm. And like, what was your relationship to that holiday with your dad? How how do you approach it now? Uh, well, whenever it was his birthday or Father's Day or something, he would, he, yeah, he would, he would be a grumpy guy. But um, we would usually do something simple like, you know, he loved food, he loved cooking. So go out to eat. And, you know, maybe canoe around the lakes uh, in Minnesota, see a movie. You know, he was a really simple guy that way. Like dinner and a movie and an afternoon in the sun was good enough for him. Uh, And now, you know, I I call all those events, you know, Deathsgiving. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Every, Every anniversary, you know, his death anniversary, Father's Day, his birthday, uh, to try to make it a macabre little celebration. And do you use that term in terms of like, oh, it's another day where grief gives me more, or is it like <laughs> a reference to Thanksgiving? 
Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's sort of a reference to Thanksgiving, but it's just sort of a funny name me and my friend came up with. You know, it's not a very sad time for me, maybe a little solemn, and I don't feel like being very social, but I usually end up calling my family, calling my friend Gabby, who has a similar experience. So it's, it's a, it's a day where I catch up with my family in a way that I, I might not, even if he were still alive, I might just talk to him. So they're, they're usually joyous days, um, two or three years out. Yeah. And you say two or three years out, is that different than maybe year one felt? Uh, yeah, year one, I, uh, yeah, I ended up just drunk and weeping in a bar in Glasgow. So that was a little bit different. Uh, I'm not in Glasgow now. Um, and you know, those were the firsts and even the seconds were sort of hard cause it's not as special as the first and you feel it waning as we hit the, the third, you know, I'm sort of getting used to the feelings and it's nice to have a time to remember him as he sort of slips, slips away a little bit. I've been thinking a lot about identity and how that plays into our grief. And, and I'm curious for you, do you have a sense of how your race and your gender and your sexual orientation, like how have those been a part of grief or your permission to grieve? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, well, on identity broadly, uh, this experience, especially in the last few months, made me realize that some identities have a sort of transience to them and tie with uh, privilege. Like there's a lot of stable identities that I have. You know, I'm a, a, a white cis male and that's something that seems to be here. But I, I realized the more that I wrote and the more that I lived and the more I felt different from other people that Grief is a really big identity for me, and it's not one that I wear on my sleeve, so to speak. And going to, it was really interesting going to um, a very rigorous liberal arts college uh, right now because, I mean, something that's that's huge for young people right now and, and the world or the United States is talking about the intersectionality of identity and privilege and you know, the people who end up on top because of the institutions. And it was really interesting being a part of that discourse and having this identity that, you know, wasn't my sexuality, my gender, my race, that, you know, no one ever talked about. So all my other identities, you know, remain the same. And the people around me were safe to presume the same things about me. But there was a shift where my identity as someone who lost their parent became the prominent identity, the way that I thought about myself, you know. My race was was never as something I thought about as much, which is a privilege to not have to think about something like that. I mean, maybe that's why, uh, you know, my identity as someone who's grieving rose to the top is I, I have a privileged background and then you know, this train runs through my life. All the other things seem to tell less and less about me as grief comes to mold me. Yeah, that's a really interesting point about the fact that maybe the privilege of being white in our society allowed grief to have such a prevalent 
piece of your identity or the way you were referring to yourself in the world or relating to the world and how maybe a person of color walking out into the world navigating racism on a day-to-day basis and then also grief and mixing those two together and and whether or not there's the same level of um, permission or possibility to come forward with that grief. Yeah, no, it's 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 been a really revelatory experience because I mean, yeah, again, my personal cross section of identities, not a lot of microaggressions going on towards me in society. You know, it's having this experience where people do say things about grief that just really bother you that they don't realize. Um, you know, there's not a lot of prejudice against, you know, being a white cis male. Um, and there isn't institutional or societal prejudice against the grieving either. There's just um, a certain amount of ignorance. And meeting that ignorance uh, in this sort of emergent identity has given me a lot to think about, about how people have to interact with a world that doesn't understand them. I mean, I think for myself, when I walk out into the world or I talk with people about grief, you know, I'm on guard for people saying something maybe that doesn't feel understanding or accepting or comes across as really judgmental. But I'm not doing that from also the wondering of, am I going to be interacting with someone who's saying something that feels like a a micro or a macro aggression about my race as well? And having to like parse those things apart or not and just experience them together. And speaking a little bit more about that idea of, you know, oftentimes it doesn't come from any sort of malice, right? It comes from just not knowing of how to interact with folks who are grieving. What would you say are like the two things that have been helpful in your grief? And what are the two things that have been not so helpful? I think one thing that, um, you know, people can really do for me and that I appreciate is if they're okay just to listen. And and there's there's a big pressure when someone is telling you something really heavy to try to fix it for them or, you know, ameliorate it give them a little token of wisdom that you usually haven't earned at all um, and you heard on a rom-com. And when, when people can refrain from, I mean, speaking um, on something that they don't understand and just be willing to sit with the discomfort because that's what I have. I don't have a little toolbox. I have the discomfort and the pain. I think that's really uh, powerful just to not try to resolve it for me or for you. And something that I do that helps me feel better navigating this in the world is to, you know, be upfront about how I feel. I mentioned earlier, like, bangers, like, making a joke, you know. If someone says something that offends me, I'll make a joke about it. Uh, Someone my dad knew, you know, heard that he had died, and he asked me how old he was. And I was like, well, my dad was 57. And he said, wow, I'm 58. And I said, congratulations. Um, So that makes me feel better, you know, and that made him feel bad. And I think that's uh, good work to do. So, yeah, things that aren't so great uh, and that don't help. Yeah, I think when people try to fix things for you uh, really doesn't help. And something that doesn't help me is when I just bury that resentment, uh, especially with people I'm close to and try to put it down rather than say something to them because that just exacerbates, you know, the loneliness and the feeling that your identity is untouchable or unknowable. Yeah, that's like double work for you in that 
maybe someone says something and it's pretty ouchy for you and then you have to do the work of bringing that up to them and sharing with them knowing that in the end that's going to be the most beneficial for you but it's not easy no it's not easy but it's you know when I can make them uncomfortable it's sort of rewarding sometimes it's like (laughs) you made me uncomfortable and now you feel weird and you're a grown man so now we are same same Well, Harry, I know that you are wrapped up at college, which is where you were doing a lot of your comedy. Any thoughts or plans for where listeners might be able to partake in your comedy in the future? Well, uh, July 18th to the 21st, and I hope those are the right dates, uh, I'm going to be helping out with the Portland Queer Comedy Festival, biggest uh, queer stand-up festival in the United States, and I might have a, uh, a set there. That's where you might be able to see me and then around town doing doing open mics until I get paid. And by around town listeners, we mean Portland, Oregon. So mm-hmm. sorry for Portland, those of you who are not mm-hmm. local. Yeah. Do you have anything online that people could see? Uh, I don't have anything online yet. I wish I did right now, but soon I will. All right. Well, stay tuned, listeners. Maybe one day you'll be able to Google Harry Jensen and you will find him doing a stand-up comedy set for you on YouTube. Oh, I hope so. Well, Harry, thanks for taking time today to talk with me and share about your experience. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for tuning in today and being part of our community. You are the reason why we do this show. And we're grateful for everyone out there who's listening and sharing these episodes and hopefully finding something meaningful in these conversations. We are produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children, which is a nonprofit organization. And we are funded completely by donations from the community. So if you are ever feeling inclined to help support this show, please go to our website, doug.org forward slash grief out loud and just click the donate button. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time.